You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Boom! Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. How are you? How are you? What's that? Oh, great. That's really good news. I'm really glad for you. Excellent stuff. I'm fine as well, thank you. It's been a little while, hasn't it, since I spoke to you last. Yeah, I've been away for a couple of weeks now. What have I been doing? You know what I've been doing. I've been on a holiday. Um, I went travelling in Indonesia, and that's the plan for this episode. I'm going to try and tell you about it in as much detail as I can, so you know what it was like for me, just to kind of bring you with me, as it were. I'm just going to try and bring it to life through words. I hope that you will stay with me for the entire episode. This might be several episodes, in fact. Uh, I've no idea at this point. I'm not quite sure how long this is going to go on for. Uh, But um, welcome back anyway to Luke's English Podcast. I hope that you've been well. I hope that uh, your summer or winter or rainy season or dry season or or whatever it is, wherever you are, I hope that's been going well for you. Um, And that, uh, you know, the the general uh, feeling... Uh, has been good. I hope that that's the case. Um, so let's get stuck in. Let's shall we? Let's get stuck into this. I could st- I could tell you some other news. You know, for example, I could say that uh, I have had loads more competition entries. Um, I'm somewhere in the region of about fifty entries at the moment in my um, inbox. Uh, podcast comp at gmail.com. Today is the, I believe it's the 29th of August. Um, and I think that means you've got just a couple of days left if you want to enter the competition because the competition closes um, basically right at the end of August. So that's my time well, here in France. So that's, um, you know, like Paris time, 12 midnight on the last day of August. That's your, that's the the uh the deadline for this competition so you've still got a bit of time if you want to enter it but i have had uh over 50 entries and i've downloaded all of them and they're all sitting in a in a uh a folder here on my computer and i'm gonna i haven't listened to all of them i've just sort of listened to a little bit it first first thing my first impression is wow it's great to hear people it's great to hear the voices of my listeners it's really amazing there's people from all over the world it's really a wonderful thing and um, I will be kind of editing it all together and putting them into uh, episodes which will be called Your English Podcast, competition entries number one, number two, number three, and so on. 50 entries is quite a lot. I mean, I think it's at least twice as many as I got when I did the other competition. Uh, when was that? When was my last competition? It was at least two years ago, I believe. Um, so I've doubled the number of competition entries. And the audio files are slightly longer than before. Last time I gave everyone three minutes. This time it's five minutes. So it's slightly more substantial than it was before. So I'll be coming on to that uh, later on. Um, and uh, that's something for us all to look forward to, isn't it? Yes, it is. Right. So let's get down to business regarding this episode about Um, my traveling experience in Indonesia. I came back um, um, just under a week ago. So I've been kind of like emerging, blinking into the light. You know, when you come back from a holiday in a a distant place, um, you have to deal with um, the jet lag. You know what I mean? The jet lag, that's when you feel tired because of several reasons. One is because your body clock is kind of adjusted differently because when you live in another time zone for a couple of weeks your body gets used to that time zone your body gets used to going to sleep and waking up at certain times of the day and then when you transport yourself back home the time zone is different and so suddenly in the middle of the day you get struck by uh, tiredness you suddenly feel sleepy it's like oh my body wants to go to bed but it's 2 p.m i've got stuff to do so you do go through that feeling of kind of like Uh, fighting against tiredness and just falling asleep at random moments during the day. So I've been kind of like getting my body back to normal. Um, I did have a suntan when I came back. I swear to God, I did have a suntan, but it's fading very fast for several reasons. Suntan, of course, that's when you um, spend time in the sunlight and it changes the colour of your skin. Now, I am, uh, obviously, I'm English. I'm very white. I'm a very white English man. Um, And uh, so 
my skin tends to be very sensitive to the sun. I mean, I am seriously white. I mean, uh, some parts of my body, my skin is like so white that um, it actually reflects the light back. You know, you need a pair of sunglasses uh, if if I take my top off. Um, and in fact, my skin is, is almost see-through at some points. You can see anyway. Um, what I'm saying is that I'm a bit sensitive to the sunlight, so I tend to burn quite easily. But I do tan eventually. I do get tans. Uh, I do get a tan, but it fades rather quickly. So that's one reason why my suntan is fading fast. The other reason is because here, where I am in Paris, it's very grey and it's kind of miserable. In fact, everyone goes on holiday in August. The place is completely empty. But then at the end of August, everyone comes back, and you get a sense that everyone has to kind of like go back to work again. And it doesn't help when the weather is grey and raining all the time. It's pretty. It's pretty grim. In fact. And um, that doesn't help the tan. In fact, just a week of this and you're sort of back to normal again. Um, but still, I, the, the memory of my holiday is still fairly fresh in my mind. Um, so I just came back from a two-week holiday in Indonesia. Let me tell you about it in this episode. Some of what I'm going to say to you now was written in a notepad while I was there. I kind of kept a little record on a notepad uh, while I was there. So some of it is a sort of transcription of, of what I wrote in my notepad. I'm just reading out the things that I wrote there. And some of it was written when I got back in the, in the few days that I got back. I tried to remember some of the things that happened and kind of note them down. Because it's, it's, um, it's surprising how um, when you come back from an experience like that, it sort of, um, y- you kind of, the immediacy of it kind of leaves you a little bit, you know? Like, it's hard to remember exactly how it felt and exactly what it was like. So I did try and write down some details. Um, so some of it's written down, some of it uh, is just me explaining my experience from memory, okay? I'm not teaching you specific language in this episode, but as ever, you will find this um, to be full of descriptive vocabulary and a variety of grammatical structures, including some narrative verb narrative verb tenses and, and other things like that. Some of this, um, some of what I'm saying is transcribed at teacherluke.co.uk, and some of it is unwritten, okay? If you would like to actively practice your listening skills, why not transcribe some of the unwritten sections of this podcast episode? A Google document for this episode is now open, and uh, you can just check the page for this episode, um, Travelling in Indonesia, just find that page, um, or check the transcript collaboration page to find that Google document where you can start uh, transcribing uh, this episode if you want to. Uh, I know that I have some listeners in Indonesia, uh, so I would like to say a special hello to you. Hello. Um, Thank you very much for hosting my girlfriend and me in your beautiful country for two weeks. I understand that I only really scratched the surface of your culture in the two weeks that we were there. And we acted as rather typical tourists, really. I apologise in advance if I misunderstood anything about your country or your way of life in this episode. And I hope that you realise that whatever I'm describing here is really just my subjective experience. I know that you understand this. Uh, I know that you understand that it's just my attempt at describing what it's like for a European to visit Indonesia for a couple of weeks. I'm not pretending to be an expert on the place, but uh, rather to just describe my own experiences, whether positive or in fact negative. I hope that you enjoy hearing me describe my time spent in your lovely country. Um, At this point, I can't say how long this episode will be, but I suspect that it will be probably... um, it will probably go on for quite a long time because I have lots of things to talk about and to describe. It'll probably be divided into several episodes or several chapters. So this might just be part one of a two-part series, which I think you'll agree is a perfectly good thing indeed, isn't it? I mean, haven't you been waiting for a new episode? Well, the wait is over. So sit back, brew a large pot of tea, smoke a cigar, pop open a bottle of wine, or simply lie back, um, close your eyes, and do whatever you have to do in order to get yourself into the appropriate mood to appreciate this new episode 
of Luke's English Podcast. And let's go. Okay. Now, let's begin. So, I'd like you to picture this, okay? Picture this situation. My girlfriend and I are on an island in Indonesia, climbing aboard a rickety wooden boat, which is going to take us across to another smaller island where we plan to spend the last few days of our holiday, resting on the beach and catching up on a lot of sleep. We are both exhausted and on our last legs. We've just spent the last three days climbing to the summit of a volcano, all 3,726 metres of it. The trek lasted three days and two nights, including climbing in the middle of the night in near zero temperatures, trekking during the day in the sweltering heat of the midday sun. We are covered from head to toe in volcanic dust. We're covered in crap, basically, completely covered in mud. We haven't showered in three days. We've hardly slept. We haven't eaten since 7am that morning. We're burned by the sun, dehydrated, walking on blistered feet. Every step is like climbing a mini mountain in itself. We are emotionally and physically drained, but we're delighted. The final part of our adventure is, is to just get on this boat and get out to the island, find our accommodation, and then collapse. The trek that we've done has been a true challenge, including numerous moments of genuine fear and risk. It's been the hardest thing that either of us have ever done. At times we thought that we might not make it back down to the other side of the mountain. Part of the mental challenge has been to just try not to think about the risks. For example, a twisted ankle, a fall, or simply being too exhausted or sick to go any further. There are no helicopters on this island. There was no mountain rescue um, to help us if we had got into trouble. If something had gone wrong, we would have just been stuck. Sure, this was a holiday trek, but it was also underscored with some sense of true danger. The facilities up there were very basic. Now we find ourselves getting onto this decidedly sketchy looking wooden boat. It's designed to carry about 30 people and there are already at least 35 people on board and the boat is sitting very low in the water. It's, it's long and slim and it's made out of wood which is splintered and wet it has a bamboo frame over the top with a blue tarpaulin cover. It's very basic. We scramble on board, struggling with our heavy backpacks, our legs weak with fatigue. Just getting onto the boat is almost too much effort after what we've just done. More and more people are being packed onto the boat. There is an atmosphere of slight panic, it has to be said. This is perhaps the last boat of the day going out to the island. People are getting on and they're, they're getting kind of stressed about getting a place, finding a seat on the, on the boat. It's very difficult. The floor is very slippery. People are trying not to fall over or drop things. Uh, the people who are already on board are looking around, even shouting at the captain that there's no more room. But tickets have already been sold. Everyone wants to get on this boat. The, stuff, uh, the staff just keep waving people on. More and more people getting on the boat. Eventually, there must be at least 60 people on board this boat, which is designed for probably half that number. My girlfriend and I exchange weary and worried looks. I just want a shower and, and a bed, I'm thinking. I try to avoid panicking. But this does not seem safe. The boat is very low in the water and it's rocking heavily from side to side as more and more people climb along the edges and try and put their bags down into the middle of the boat. The captain and staff uh, shout at each other on the shore. Are they arguing or is this normal? 
Is this the normal way that they communicate or is there a problem? It seems that they really just care about getting more passengers on board the boat. I realise at this point that I'm gripping my bag close to my chest with an empty bottle of water in my left hand, which is being crushed. I'm, I'm sweating. The passengers on board the boat are a mix of backpackers like us and local people including old women in their scarves and headdresses, old men, children, uh, even huge baskets of fruit and vegetables, buckets full of fish, uh, loads of backpacks, boxes of beer and water, and even some wooden furniture which is piled up in the middle of the boat. People are seated on the benches around the edge. People are sitting on each other's laps. Some people are sitting on the edge of the boat. Other people are just crowded, standing uh, on the end of the boat, hanging onto the bamboo frame. I try not to think about how dangerous this is. I look out at the water. It doesn't seem to be too choppy, but we're already rocking about quite a lot and we're only at the beach. This island here in Indonesia, is becoming more and more popular. Only 20 years ago, the airport was built. 20 years before, there were virtually no tourists here at all. Then the airport was built. Suddenly, the place is filling up more and more. Uh, the local culture, it seems to, be, seems to me, is not necessarily equipped to deal with quite so many people. There are no... It, it seems that there are no regulations or rules... Um, for example, regarding the maximum number of people that can be allowed on a boat. Um, and I start to wonder, what will it really take for safety measures to be introduced here? Nobody is wearing life jackets. It's not really clear who is in charge. To be honest, it's all a bit tense. I overhear another passenger expressing his fears too. Um, talking about a story that he'd heard in the newspaper. Apparently just three days ago, on a nearby island, one of these boats capsized in the water. It turned over, it capsized, and there were only three survivors. It was probably just a small column in the newspaper back home. It probably didn't even make the TV news. It makes you wonder how often these sorts of accidents happen in places like this without us really knowing about it. I'm here, I think, I'm here to enjoy my holiday on this remote island. The rewards, really, of travelling here should outweigh the whisks. The whisks? I'm not really talking about whisks, it's not a kitchen podcast. Anyway, the rewards of being here should outweigh the risks on this kind of adventure. But, it has to be said, the risks are there. It's not just a safe package holiday in the Mediterranean, or even a camping trip to Wales or something. No, we're on the other side of the world, in a basic country, it has to be said, heading to an island off an island. The engine starts on the boat, and a local woman next to me shrieks in panic as the boat lurches from one side to the next. It sounds like everyone on the boat at this moment kind of goes, ooh, there's a general sense the whole boat reacts with a bit of shock at the way that this boat is lurching from side to side. It's so low in the water. A local man, I hear, is, is saying, too many passenger, too many passenger. But people hold on. The outboard motor on this boat strains and we start moving out into the water rather slowly. Just hold on. It'll be okay, I think to myself. I look at my girlfriend who is my soon-to-be wife, we exchange a tired look. Character building, she mouths to me. I nod and laugh a bit. I look out to the sea. There's the island. It's about 20 minutes away. We'll make it. Of course we will. The water's not too rough. My guidebook tells me that you should never attempt to swim between these islands because the current in the water is way too strong. You'll be swept out into the ocean. The engine on the boat splutters and there's a bit of smoke, but we're chugging along fairly steadily. I look over the edge behind me. The water is surprisingly high. It's actually level with my back. The two women on my left are chattering quite nervously, it seems, although I can't really understand the local language. 
It's hard to tell how they really feel, but I do get a sense of some tension. Maybe I'm just tired and I'm freaking out a bit. But it does get a sense that there's a bit of there's a bit of tension on board this boat at this moment. We carry on in this way for a while. My girlfriend and I smile at each other. She closes her eyes for a little nap. An old woman is sleeping. A kid is running his hand through the water next to the side of the boat. We leave the bay and then hit the deeper water between the islands. I look down. It's a deep, dark blue, almost black, down there at the bottom of the water. This is where the strong currents are. Another five minutes and we're halfway. The trees on the two islands are about the same size. The sun is getting low in the, in the sky. Suddenly, the water gets choppier and the boat rocks from side to side, the water coming up to the edge of the boat on the left as the current kicks in. Two kids are crying and one of them starts wailing and the sound just cuts right through me, forcing me to close my eyes. But the darkness there is broken by an alarm, much worse than the child screaming. It's the old woman who was sleeping. Her eyes now are wide open and her toothless her toothless mouth is wailing in panic because water is pouring over the whole left side of the boat and into her lap, all over her luggage, immediately filling the bottom of the boat, covering my boots in water, pouring around the shoulders of my girlfriend. I reach forward to grab her and the boy who had his hand in the water is suddenly swept off the side of the boat and he flies behind my girlfriend. He's in the sea. He's not at all on the boat. He's out. He's overboard. The boat suddenly explodes with panic and it all happens in just a matter of seconds. Everybody instinctively leans to the right, tipping the boat violently in the other direction. The driver turns sharply to the right at the same time, but the weight in the boat, now with added water, is just too heavy and the boat continues to lurch to the right and suddenly torrents of water flood over the right side of the boat as well like some terrible waterfall the left side rises up exposing the hull to the current which pushes it further my girlfriend is now above me and suddenly i'm in the sea and all i can taste and see is salt water and i feel a massive depth below me and i hear a terrible crashing of water and screaming in my ears as the boat rolls over i burst to the surface of the water gasping looking around where is she no 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 i think i see my bag which contains all our money all of our things both of our passports i see it there but it sinks it's sinking below me it sinks below the surface and i see it plunging downwards under the water into the darkness i'll never ever get it back then i see her and she's in trouble she's not the best swimmer and all around us there are people gasping and thrashing in the water things floating the boat is upside down somewhere away to our right i feel that we're all being washed away by powerful forces of nature much bigger than us like the mountain in the distance and the sun setting in the sky. I crawl over to my girlfriend in the water and I claw at her shoulder to try and hold her, but I can't hold her. We're both out of breath and we're both wearing climbing boots, for God's sake. I try in vain to pick at the laces of my caterpillar boots with my left hand while treading water with my right hand. I manage to make eye contact with my girlfriend. She looks scared. Okay, now... Let's go back in time. Let's go back um, a week and a half earlier. Um, and I can just set the context for this. Okay? I'm going to come back to that moment. But hold that thought. Let's go back. All right? Uh, let's go back to the beginning of this trip. So, there's a difference between traveling and going on holiday. Going on holiday usually means spending a relaxing time away from home perhaps somewhere sunny, where you can lie on the beach, see the local culture a bit, eat some nice dinner, get a suntan, and generally take some time away from work. Travelling, on the other hand, is slightly different. It's slightly more adventurous, isn't it? It's not just about taking time off work. It's also about having experiences, coming face-to-face -face with a totally different way of life, taking risks, moving around a lot, 
challenging your view of the world a bit, broadening your horizons, meeting people, investing in your future, seeing the world. When you go on holiday, you take a suitcase. When you go traveling, you take a big backpack. When you go on holiday, you might do very little, really. When you go traveling, you do all kinds of adventurous things and fill your time with rich experiences. When you go on holiday, you might stay in a hotel or in a rented house or an apartment. When you go traveling, you might stay in a guest house, a backpacker's hostel, or even sleep in a tent. Uh, You might not know quite where you're going. You you might not know where you're going to go and stay from one day to the next. You might go for several days without even having a shower, for example. You might eat local food that you've never tried before. The aim of traveling is often to just get yourself into slightly difficult situations on the road as a way of coming into contact with a different culture and a different way of life with a view to learning about yourself, building character and having experiences that you can look back on in later life. There are some risks involved in traveling, but there are rich rewards to it too. Some of the things that... um, some of the phrases that uh, my girlfriend and I kept saying to each other on this trip, uh, I wrote them down. Uh, where are they? So I've got some of the phrases that that we kept repeating uh, during some of the more difficult moments, like, for example, when we climbed the mountain. Uh, stuff like, it's character-building stuff. And stuff like, just one step at a time. Slowly, slowly. These are phrases that uh, our local guides said to us all the time during our difficult mountain climb. It's not a race. Don't look up and don't look down. Just focus on what you're doing right now. Each step. Take it one step at a time. Even things like, you leave a bit of yourself at the top of the mountain and you take some of the mountain down with you. Um, So... I've done a bit of traveling in my time, as you know. I've lived abroad, but I've also traveled around countries like Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and parts of India. My girlfriend hasn't done as much traveling as me. For example, she'd never been to Southeast Asia before. Now, she really wants to do more traveling before we eventually have kids and then can't go off on adventures anymore. These days, I'm slightly more interested in having holidays than traveling experiences. After all, living away from home every day in France can feel like a travelling experience for me and I often fancy just having some relaxing time in the sunshine somewhere, catching up on some book reading, swimming in the sea, talking and enjoying dinners on restaurant patios. I must be getting old. However, I'm still up for travelling. I'm still up for it, especially since my girlfriend is so keen and I'd love to share the world with her. It's just that I know that it involves I know what it involves sometimes, that travelling so far and coming in direct contact with such different cultures can be eye-opening and wonderful, but also a bit confusing, risky and even a bit scary at times. Sure, you can go to countries where the economy is less developed and you can benefit from having a big difference in the exchange rate. For example, your euros become far more valuable when you travel to countries where the currency is not worth that much. But you also have to tolerate the different conditions, different standards of service and cleanliness, a more flexible approach to timekeeping, a lack of sort of European standard health and safety regulation. But these are the reasons for travelling, to get away from all the ordinary, boring and safe aspects of life in Europe and experience something quite different, even challenging, and then learn from it all. I just hope that my girlfriend knew what to expect. I mean, she has, it has to be said, she has pretty high standards already in Europe and she might even turn up her nose at a slightly dusty Airbnb apartment in Berlin, for example, or she might even refuse to take a shower in a hotel somewhere until room service has it cleaned again because it's not, it's not clean enough for her. Um, sh- she can't really handle spicy food. And she always gets bitten by mosquitoes and can't tolerate bad smells or lots of noise in the atmosphere at night. Now, I love this girl dearly. I really do. I'm going to marry her. But she can be a little bit hard to please sometimes. Uh, I I mean, I did wonder how she would handle the trials and tribulations of travelling which often involve staying in hillside backpacker hostels, which advertise themselves as three-star, but by French standards are more like no-star. 
eating mysterious local food off plastic tables at roadside barbecues, dealing with incessant hawkers and fake tour guides who constantly hassle you for money and business, trusting your faith to unlicensed taxi drivers who can't speak English, the smoke and noise of a million scooters buzzing all around you all day and all night, the battle against mosquitoes involving spraying chemicals all over your body in the evening, sleeping under mosquito nets at night and taking anti-malaria pills which give you indigestion and weird dreams at night, and the fact that you can't really drink the local water and you have to be constantly wondering if the salad on your plate or the ice cubes in your drink might contain some nasty little bacteria that will cause you to spend 24 hours of your hard-earned holiday on the toilet, if you're lucky, if you actually have access to one. Don't be, don't be negative, she said to me again and again. And that's what you might be thinking as well as you listen to this. Luke, don't be so negative. That's what my girlfriend said to me again and again as I warned her of these things, and she was right. I was being negative, but I felt that I had to mentally prepare her for all of these things so that she wasn't too shocked when it did happen. Because I'd been shocked by travelling experiences before, and I just wanted to share my wisdom and make sure that she was ready. I remember, for example, on my first trip to India, arriving at the airport in Goa and being immediately set upon by almost everybody. People following me around, uh, hassling my cousin and me for taxi rides, trying to persuade us to buy things or just to give them money. It was like being um, set upon by a gang. We hardly had a chance to get our bearings and it was if it was as if the whole world had descended on us. Lots of people were hassling us, quite a lot of begging and some little tricks that people uh, use um, as a way to get us to give them money. Grift, we call it, uh, being grifted, um, just as a bit of fun. I mean, it's not that serious, but it feels pretty uh, full on when you first arrive. For example, I'll just give you an example. When we first arrived in in the airport in Goa, uh, we waited at the baggage carousel for some time. Now, you, if you've travelled by plane, you'll know that that moment where you wait for your bags to come round the conveyor belt, there is a nagging feeling in the back of your mind, which is, I hope our bags have arrived and they, did, they didn't get sent to the other side of the world. Well, we stood at the baggage carousel all the way until there were no bags left. And we immediately thought, oh God, does this mean that uh, our bags have disappeared? Um, it turns out um, after we asked a member of staff in the airport, it turns out that um, uh, someone had played a little trick on us as a way of getting some money. Um, the, a member of staff had taken our bags off the conveyor belt at the beginning, realising that we were tourists. He removed our bags from the start and then, of course, waited for us to ask him for help. And when we did ask him for help, he promptly went off into the back room, produced our bags and then held out his hand so that we had to then give him money, which is a bit of a shock because we didn't have any Indian rupees to give him. So immediately it was kind of like a slightly awkward situation. It's not that bad, but uh, when you're not expecting it, it can be a bit of a surprise. Um, so um, yes, it felt like that everyone that we met was ultimately on a mission to get their hands on some of our dirty Western money. I know that that sounds a little bit cynical. And not everyone is like that in India, of course. In fact, you know, everyone, people, you know, it's a beautiful place and people are, are wonderful. But in certain places, especially, for example, just outside the airport, it can be very intense and overwhelming. And that's how it feels anyway. Some of these grifters, as we call them, are really smart and they will often make friends with you or even give you very good advice but then they will ultimately just try to sell you things that you don't really want and you feel strongly obliged to give them money um, paying prices which you're sure are too high but that you're not re you know you're not really uh, aware of, of how much you're being ripped off but you feel guilty about not wanting to pay as soon as you know full well that your money is worth so much more feeling confused about the impact of your mere presence 
on this local culture, as if somehow by bringing your money, your spending power to this relatively poor place, you're encouraging the locals to feed off tourism and then take part in this kind of seedy and slightly desperate hard sell culture. It often happens too quickly for you to process. It can be a little bit overwhelming. What should I pay? Should I pay? Should I buy things at all? Should I give my money away? Should I refuse? Should I be sympathetic? Or am I just being a sucker? It can be quite overwhelming. And as I said, you can feel a bit mixed up and guilty. I just came here to see some of the beautiful countryside, glimpse the culture, experience something real and have experiences is what you think. But perhaps that's a selfish attitude and you must realise how your presence in these places affects the local culture. Can we really expect to travel from our wealthy cities and just enjoy all the benefits of these developing countries without having the responsibility to look after the people who live there? Can we just come in, eat their food, see their ancient temples, enjoy their beaches and yet not acknowledge the impact that our presence has on their way of life? And is the way to solve this by paying high prices for these goods? I don't know. Maybe I am just being a bit negative by focusing on these things at the beginning. But these are some of the thoughts that ran through my head and that run through my head when I'm traveling. It's not only those things, of course. I'm also fascinated, amused, and impressed by the places and the people. But still, I do think about these things too. Also, I'm sure that the locals are actually quite happy to have us visit their countries. We bring in lots of tourist money, just like tourists do in the UK, for example, uh, and we give them a chance to meet people from different cultures too. Anyway, I'm just saying it can be a little bit complicated being a tourist in these areas, but perhaps that's just because I'm a complicated tourist. Maybe I'm complicating things too much. Maybe I'm thinking about it too much. I wonder. So anyway, after trying to tell my girlfriend about these things, my girlfriend did assure me that she would be fine with the conditions. And so we agreed, yeah, let's go traveling this summer, even just for a couple of weeks. It'll be awesome. And we'll have experiences that we'll never forget. Let's not just go to the Mediterranean. We can do that when we've got kids. Let's push the boat out and visit some stranger shores. Suddenly, I was really looking forward to another travelling experience again. This time with my future wife along for the ride. We settled on Indonesia after quite a lot of searching. We had considered other places, for example, Mexico, but we decided we'd need more time if we wanted to travel around Mexico. And we weren't sure of the weather in some parts of of the country in August, although I'm sure it's great. And we do plan to visit Mexico soon. Uh, It has so much to offer. We also considered Jordan, but decided that it would just be too hot, especially near the Dead Sea, where it can reach temperatures of up to 50 degrees Celsius in August. In the end, we went for Indonesia. But even then, two weeks was clearly not enough. We booked our flights in and out of Jakarta, and then we planned a basic itinerary. Uh, What I've just read to you there was written, partly when I was on holiday there, and partly just after coming back. Now, uh, I'd like to just uh, continue talking to you, but in a Um, a slightly unscripted way about the experiences that we had on our traveling holiday in Indonesia. I'll describe um, what happened all the way up to that moment where we caught the boat out to the island. Eventually, um, I will describe our experience of climbing Mount Rinjani. And as I said, followed by the boat journey, which I described at the beginning of this episode. So let me tell you about where we went. Indonesia. Right. Indonesia is an archipelago. That means it's a a, a load of islands, okay? Um, It's over 13,000 islands. Some of the main islands in Indonesia are Java, Bali, Lombok, Sumatra, Komodo. There are obviously many, many more islands in the Indonesian archipelago. Um, It's positioned in Southeast Asia, just below Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos and Vietnam, to the east of the Indian Ocean and north of Australia. It's really far away from Northern Europe. It's almost on the other side of the world. The place is famous for a number of things, including its local culture of music, dance, puppetry 
and textiles. It has a mix of different religions, including Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, which all combine to enrich the culture. The climate in August is hot and sunny and slightly humid. There are some big, bustling cities full of markets, street-side restaurants, cafes and religious sites. In the countryside, there are plenty of volcanoes, many of them still active, and beaches with white sand and coral reefs, and green, lush fields, coconut trees, that kind of thing. It's also famous for the friendliness of its people. It's possible to spend lots and lots of time there. We only had two weeks, which isn't enough time to see everything and also relax. We tried to combine traveling and activity with some downtime relaxing on the beach. Bali is probably the most famous tourist destination in Indonesia. And every year, thousands upon thousands of tourists visit the island, many of them from Australia. We decided actually to miss Bali in order to avoid the tourists if possible. In the end, we chose to spend some time on Java, visiting Yogyakarta city and its nearby temples of Borobudur and Prambanan. We also wanted to see several volcanoes on the island, Mount Bromo and Kawaijin. Both of them um, are said to be incredible sights to behold, particularly at sunrise. In the end, we actually didn't see those two volcanoes, uh, just because of lack of time, in fact, and also in an effort to avoid spending too long in the back of a car driving to each site. It's a pity that we didn't see those places, but we thought that we'd make up for it by spending three days climbing another famous volcano, Mount Rinjani, on the island of Lombok uh, in the second half of our holiday. So um, after spending time on Java, we flew uh, to Lombok Island, spending several days in a beachside area called Senjiji. I think that's how it's pronounced. Might might be pronounced Sengigi, but I thought it was Senjiji. So we spent a few days there before doing the three-day trek uh, up uh, Mount Rinjani. We planned then to spend the last three days of our trip on a tiny island uh, on a tiny island called Gili Air. Uh, th- yes, Gili Air or Gili Air. Okay, just um, just off the coast of Lombok. Um, I'll tell you more about that later. So um, for me, planning a, a traveling holiday is a bit like ordering a pizza. Okay, you got to keep it simple. I have a theory that you can spoil the pizza by adding too many toppings. Just keep it simple. You've got to put a maximum of three toppings on a pizza. Any more than that, you're going to spoil the pizza. Too much stuff, okay? It's the same with this kind of traveling holiday. Don't try to pack in too many things. You'll end up spending most of your time carrying a backpack around, stuck on a bus, or in the back of a taxi somewhere. You can't try to visit too many places. You've got to slow down and just try to do a few things. Also, time moves pretty slowly in these places, and you can't expect everything to happen in a punctual matter. No, you can't expect everything to happen in a punctual manner. All it takes is for one bus to break down on the road or for one flight to be delayed and you've lost a day, for example. I mean, stuff happens on the road. You can be sure of it. Don't plan too much. You'll just spend all your time moving from A to B. That's why we tried to keep it simple and not do too much. So um, let me tell you a few things about the differences. I mean, how it feels different in this place. Um, Let's see. So obviously, at the moment, I live in Paris and I've lived in London and so on. These are big cities, big, bustling, busy places, very urban areas. There's a sense of stress. People are always in a rush. Um, It's very kind of uh, built up area. Uh, lots of buildings, lots of people living on top of each other. Uh, but going to Indonesia, it immediately feels somehow both relaxing and chaotic at the same time. It's relaxing because people live at a slower pace. You can see it in the way they move. You can see it in the way that they, um, the way that they do things. They do things at a slightly slower pace. Um, it seems that people's lives are a little more simple. I mean. Here in Paris, I think that people's lives are very sort of um, 
they're made very complicated by things like all of our technology, all of our mobile phones and computers and stuff, which are supposed to make life easier for us. But we end up spending a lot of our time sort of stressed out trying to access our emails and things like that. Um, it seems that, you know, looking at some of the villagers that uh, I saw there, it seems that life is a little more simple. Uh, it's not necessarily worse or better, but it just seems uh, like a simpler, uh, slower pace of life. People um, were very friendly, lots of smiling. Um, the locals, when you kind of walk past them or meet them in the street, they seem to be curious. And I wonder if they're a bit judgmental. I mean, I see the... I often would see the tourists, the, the, the locals looking at me as a tourist, and I wonder, what are they thinking? What do they think of this this sort of weird, pale-looking uh, guy? Now, I suppose I sometimes I have a bit of a frown. You know what I mean? Like, my, my brow is a little bit knotted because I've got stuff on my mind. Um, maybe I'm carrying stress with me that I don't realise I'm carrying, and I, it ends up with this slightly knotted brow on my on my uh, forehead you know uh, when you've got a lot on your mind I got the impression that walking around some of the villages there I just felt like I was carrying around this kind of European stress and the villagers just didn't seem to have the same kind of uh, stress on their heads um, yeah it's and like you'd see little kids playing in the street and they'd look at you I would wonder what these kids thought of us what do, what do we look like to them do you think we look like these weird, sort of sick-looking, stressed-out uh, people who who don't know how to live their lives properly? I don't know. It's it's a it's strange and wonderful experience. That um, ultimately the the locals are very nice and friendly. Like they might sort of stare at you a little bit as you walk past them in the street, but all you need to do is go hello. And they immediately smile and say hello to you, either in English or in their local language. Very smiley people, very friendly. It's really, really nice. Um, it, it Obviously, it's cheaper there, uh, much, much cheaper. The money is worth less. They have the rupiah, and it works out to about, let's see, I think 10,000 rupiah is worth about six euros. Um, so it can be a bit confusing. You're like, how rich am I? You know, you kind of uh, go to the bank to get money from a cash point, you end up withdrawing like a million rupee and you've got all these notes in your hand. You think, oh my God, I'm a millionaire. Um, there are so many scooters there. And it's the same as in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, just millions of scooters. It's incredible. The streets are just like a sea. It's like a tidal wave of scooters. It's incredible. Um, it seems to be a little bit more basic there. Um, for example, um, scaffolding on the side of buildings. Um, here in Europe, when, for example, a building needs to be repaired, um, the repair workers, uh, the construction workers, will build scaffolding using metal pipes. Um, it's like a sort of a structure which goes on the outside of a building made of metal pipes which all link together and stuff and floorboards and ladders and things like that. Well, um, over there we saw um, scaffolding that was made of bamboo. Uh, just bamboo all sort of lashed together with, with rope or something. It's incredible. All the scaffolding is made of bamboo. Amazing. Uh, the people there seem to be very musical. I was very impressed by the traditional music, which seems to be a bit like kind of electronic ambient dance music that I used to listen to in the 90s. I wonder if I can play you some traditional Indonesian music at this point, actually. Let's see if I can do that. Indonesian music. Um, hold on a second. Indonesian music. Um See if I can play a little bit for you so you know what kind of stuff I'm talking about. Um, all right. This is just a random video from YouTube of some Javanese music. Gamelan Niai Saraswati. Um, I think what we're hearing now is the musicians sitting down and beginning. Let's have a little listen to this. We're just going to skip forward a little bit.
sounds like electronic music, sort of thing that you would listen to at a music festival in the countryside in England. It's like ambient, chill-out music. It sounds a bit like Aphex Twin or something. This is the traditional music from Indonesia. Okay, so you get an idea of this sort of, this spiritual sort of trance-like music, which um, I heard a lot, uh, not just in performances, but you just kind of hear it um, you're walking around that there's some music being played in a nearby building or it's just being played uh, through some speakers somewhere um, it seems that people are very musical um, uh, this music is made by great big teams of musicians who sit down and play different parts on various kind of percussion instruments like these kind of bells and xylophones uh, some of the th instruments are very large and they make a very deep bass sound and I was really struck by the musicality of the people. We saw lots of live music, either traditional music or modern, like guys playing in bands. Um, and the locals just seemed to be very naturally musical, with either um, music playing in the background in lots of situations or just live music being performed in front of us. Sometimes we overheard traditional music being played live nearby somewhere, that deep bass sound booming out through the walls. Um, Islam is the primary religion and they, they um, obviously they pray five times a day. Uh, the call to prayer, uh, that's when uh, the, the local mosque uh, calls out to the local area, uh, reminding people that they have to then pray uh, to Mecca. Uh, the call to prayer is a regular sound and it happens during the day. Uh, you hear the sort of the prayer chanting coming from the temple, from the from the mosque. It happens uh, during the day, and it also happens in the middle of the night, first thing in the morning, often at four thirty a.m. It's quite common to like wake up a little bit and hear the call to prayer uh, from a nearby mosque. Um, let me try and tell you about what we did in each place. I'll try and um, I'll try and keep it brief, but I'll try and explain what we did and what we saw in each place that we went to. Um, I've I'm just now looking at my recording device and I see that the battery is a little bit low. This is also 51 minutes into this episode. Time really flies, doesn't it? Doesn't time fly? Yes, it does. I hope that you're still with me. I'm thinking actually at this point that I'm going to pause here. I've given you a sort of introduction of, uh, uh, an introduction of sorts. And in part two, I'll try and um, explain the details of where we went, what we saw, and finally how we dealt with the dramatic boat journey that you heard me describe at the beginning of this episode. Okay, so I think this is probably my chance to just wind up part one of this, and I'll be back with you in part two very, very soon. I'm also going to change the batteries on my recording device so that we have no technical difficulties whatsoever here at Luke's English Podcast. Okay, great. So it's lovely to speak to you again, and I'll speak to you again very, very soon. But um, for part one of this episode, it's time for me to say goodbye. Bye, bye, bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.